visit with you once again. Uh, as uh, Lee mentioned, I am serving at Providence Christian College, and in a few weeks we have freshman landing, and we're going to have a student activities fair where we're hopefully we'll have a representative from your church out there. Uh, we can tell them about new life uh, here in Burbank, and hopefully you will uh, be able to receive a handful of students from our student body, and I hope that uh, they'll worship together with you and be shepherded here. Um, but it is good to be with you this morning. This morning's reading comes from Jeremiah 29, and I invite you to stand as I lead us through reading the first 14 verses of this chapter. <clears throat> These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, we give you thanks for your word which has been passed down uh, to us. And we thank you, Father, for the saints that went beforehand uh, whose same faith they proclaimed, we thank you that they were not complete without us, Father. We pray that this message that was spoken so long ago would have meaning for us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear it, minds to understand it, hearts to receive it, and that you would bend our wills to put it into practice in our lives. Give us wisdom, we pray, Father. Give me wisdom as I seek to proclaim this faithfully. We pray that your will would be done ultimately through your word and by the ministry of your spirit. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. 
I'm a bit of a news junkie, and uh, this past month has been filled with um, some very depressing news in my estimation. Uh, the first piece of news, which came about a month ago, I feel like it put a pall upon the workplace where I work and upon the church for a while, but it was the, the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court uh, decision that was handed down, uh, sanctioning legitimizing same-sex marriage as the law of the land. We all know that it has been becoming the law of many states, but now it's the law of the land. Uh, and then later on, uh, a few weeks later, and this really didn't make the same kind of headlines, but I heard about this by listening to the radio. I heard about a law in Oregon, or maybe you heard about this, that permits, I'll call them children, children as young as age 15, to obtain a, uh, uh, an operation, sex change operation, without even notifying parents. Kind of news makes your mouth hang open. And then most recently a story has come to light, maybe some of you uh, have seen it, that apparently Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider, has been engaging in the selling of body parts from babies, from fetuses that have been aborted. It's shocking, and it's a strange way to probably begin a message as a visiting pastor, probably wondering what's my point, what's this have to do with uh, Jeremiah 29? Life in America is different now, isn't it? It's always different in some sense, but it's kind of like we're not in Kansas anymore. We are living in a post-Christian culture. We are living in a post-Christian society. You know, this was something that's said by many people. I think even our president mentioned it many years ago. And at the time, if I recall correctly, when he mentioned it, it was quite a blowback from the church. But I think today that statement that we're living in a post-Christian society is almost just matter of fact. It's understood, yes. I guess there are some who would maintain that we're still progressing, that things are getting better. But I find it, frankly, impossible to see things that way. I think that to live in America as a Christian today is becoming more and more like living as an exile in Babylon. In fact, I would go so far as to say that indeed we are exiles. We are exiles and we are living in Babylon. That's why I had us look at this passage this afternoon, Jeremiah 29. Because this is a word for exiles living in another culture, in fact, in another country. And they're receiving instruction from God on how they should then live. And I believe some of the words that were offered to them back then are also apropos for us to be taken to heart today. So I do want to derive some very specific applications from this passage for us today. But, you know, before I just jump into that, I, I feel like it's necessary for me to really prove that we are indeed exiles. Because that may not be perfectly evident, not from reading this passage. And after all, I can't just take something from the Old Testament, make, make the jump that that specific word of encouragement or exhortation should be applied to us today in the same way it should have been applied to them without qualification. So how can I say for certain that we should apply this designation 
of being exiles in Babylon to ourselves today. Well, when we turn to the New Testament, we get some uh, clarification on this. You may not have Bibles. I didn't notice that there were Bibles in the seats in front of you. Maybe some of you have brought them. Maybe you have it on your phone. But I would encourage you, if you'd like to turn to 1 Peter 1. Peter wrote this first letter to Christians who were scattered all over the known world. And he addressed them right at the outset in this letter as exiles. In verse 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles. And then also in verse 17, he says, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And he's saying this to people who are not actually in exile. But he's calling them exiles. You know, if that's not enough, again, in verse 11 of chapter 2, if you flip over to chapter 2, he reinforces this again by appealing to them as what? Sojourners and exiles. And to top it all off, at the very end of his letter, he sends them greetings from the church in Rome, whom he refers to as she who is at Babylon. You see, Babylon can be Babylon. Babylon can be Rome. And I would submit to you that Babylon can also be the United States of America. We are exiles. And we are living in Babylon. If by themselves Peter's words aren't enough to convince us, then we also have the teaching of another writer, whoever the author of Hebrews is, to back it up. In that great, famous chapter on faith, Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews says that the great patriarchs acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And his point is that in that chapter, that apart from us, apart from us, they were not complete. And so... He is essentially, in saying that, calling us exiles, whatever generation we find ourselves in. We, too, are strangers and exiles. You ever seen that bumper sticker on many vehicles? I see it quite a bit. It's very popular on cars today. It has one of those kind of funky rad fonts uh, that has an N, right? And then a, a T in the shape of a cross, and then a W, and then an O. It looks like a halo that's encircling the N and the T that's bringing them together. N-O-T-W. Ever wondered what that, what, it, what that is? Not of this world, right? Not of this world. I'm a stranger. I'm an exile. It's very true. Jesus himself said those very words. We are not of this world. I wonder if everyone who sports those bumper stickers really grasps the fullness of the implication of that assertion, but it is true. And if it's true, we should wonder, how should we then live if we're exiles? Well, again, I do believe that this passage, Jeremiah 29, as well as 1 Peter 1, can offer us a real concrete plan on how to proceed. Let me lay it out here uh, all at once in a nutshell, and then I'm going to take a few moments to develop each of my points in turn. I believe that God calls his people living in exile whether it's Israel or the church, to live peacefully, to live prayerfully, and then finally to live in the hope of a promise. 
peacefully, prayerfully, and in the hope of promise. Let's look at, each, at the implication of each of those. <clears throat> First of all, I believe that God is calling these people to peace. And I, I think that we see this a little better if we work backwards in the text from verse 9 to verse 5. In verses 8 and 9, God, through Jeremiah, tells these exiles not to believe a lie. The word he actually uses is dreams. Not to believe the dreams that the prophets are speaking to the people. You see, these so-called prophets who were optimistic and giving people what their itching ears wanted to hear, they were offering the people dreams that they had concocted themselves, and namely, that this exile was not really God's plan. And that the people would be returning home very soon. You know, I, I, I think this is something that many of us really struggle with today as well, is believing these lies or these dreams. We sometimes listen to those who dream of the prospect of returning, right? Returning to what we once were. To what we feel has been lost. And listen, I, I lump myself among those who are susceptible to such dreams. Don't get me wrong, I, I think it's perfectly normal. I think it's natural, I think it's even righteous to lament what's been lost. Psalm 137, which was written in exile, begins with these words. It says, By the waters of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem, when we remembered how it was. It's normal to lament what's been lost. I'm, I'm 47. I'll be 47 this month. And I lament what our country has become. I've seen incredible changes in my adult years even, but if you're 77 or you're 87, consider what you have witnessed change. I think you have a deeper sense of loss over what's been lost. But I, I think it's really important nonetheless that Christians accept their role or their status as exiles, even as a norm, even as a norm in our society. We have to accept that God's plan for the church, not His plan in the sense that He is the author of sin, of course not, but in His sovereign plan of where we are now, His plan for the church is that it is an exilic community living in Babylon. And when I say that we shouldn't dream the dream of today's prophets, I mean that I think that we have to be very careful not to be seduced by the promise to return to what we were, once were, nor to triumph over our culture. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I think that that idea of triumphing, whether it's to go back or to transform, it's, it's an affliction of both the right and the left. See, the right says, hey, let's take it back. It's ours. It's part of our heritage. We've got to fight to take back our culture. But you know what? As I look at the pages of Scripture, I just don't see that as the directive of Scripture for the church. Not from the Old Testament, not from the New Testament, no matter how hard I look. Instead, we're called to live with almost a peaceful resignation that being exiles is indeed God's plan for the church in this present evil age in which we live. But I believe the left is also guilty of selling a dream of triumph sometimes. It says that what's needed isn't going back. 
isn't taking back, but a fundamental transformation of society. We shouldn't take back as much as maybe we should transform. Again, I don't see that in this passage. I don't see it as the call of the church in general. Yes, we are called to be transformed. We are called, personally, to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, and that will have an effect in transforming society. But here, God tells the people in exile to continue to do what's utterly ordinary, doesn't it? Sounds very ordinary. This is peaceful and quiet living that's being described. In verse 5, he says, build houses, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Settle down. Get to work with your hands. Very similar to what we see in the New Testament when we turn there. Paul to the Thessalonians says that he wants them to aspire. Now get this, what do you aspire to? Aspire to live quiet lives. To mind your own affairs, to work with your hands. In another place, he urges peaceful and quiet living. Does peaceful and quiet sound like dreams of fighting back or utterly transforming culture? God says, don't dream those dreams. This is normal. This is normal even if it's painful. Build houses, plant gardens, and keep getting married and having babies. <laughs> Such a simple word, right, of exhortation. But I, I, I find great contentment and joy in hearing that. It's in- interesting that marriage comes up. I've laid the table out that we are dealing right now with so many sexual reproductive ethics in our nation, right? This word obviously was for them, but I think it can be for us as well. Now, let me just address the decision about a month ago, the, the Supreme Court decision on marriage, on same-sex marriage. That is both a big deal and not such a big deal. What I mean to say is that it, it is a big deal, of course, when we consider what has been lost. Let me be clear. Homosexual behavior is not normal. The Bible calls it unnatural. And scientifically speaking, it should be clear to us that it's not normal. If everyone engaged in it, there'd be no humanity. Furthermore, it is sinful. It is clearly sinful behavior. God says that it's, an, it's, it's not just like every other sin. Too. It is a detestable sin. One for which, in the Old Testament, he prescribes the death penalty. It's very serious to him and now we think about where we are now we have sanctioned same-sex marriage as love is love and love wins that is a rejection of God's truth so that's a big deal it is a big deal but it's not such a big deal when we realize it doesn't have to affect the church now of course it will affect the church in the sense that we may lose some privileges which we've come accustomed to enjoying. We may lose a tax-exempt status in time. We don't have to panic. I work at Providence Christian College. I think that in time it may affect us. Currently, we're like many other private and religious institutions in that we accept grant money, right? Federal money or state money, and that may dry up 
We may have to take a stand for which that will dry up. It may affect us, but it doesn't affect the sanctity and purity of our marriages. It doesn't affect the responsibility of raising our children. You see, living in exile when another culture is in control doesn't mean that you have to assimilate or capitulate in matters that are sovereign and sacred. Minding your own business means something positive. It's go and do something positive. It means tending to your own family, giving away your daughters to others in the exilic community, raising your children in their respective covenant families as well as raising them corporately in the church in the, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. See, God calls the church in exile to keep on doing these very normal things and to increase, not decrease, not to live in fear. Fear can crowd out children. I think fear is crowding out children in this day and age. Maybe I'm not drawing this point out as explicitly as I should, but all of these actions I want you to see All of these actions are actually manifestations of peaceful living. Living at peace. God calls the church in exile to live at peace. He doesn't call us to live, of course, in community with the world. But as far as it depends on us, we're to live at peace with everyone, not just one another. That's important, yes. But everyone as far as it depends on us. He tells us to stop dreaming dreams of taking this back of fundamentally transforming culture, but instead being transformed ourselves by the renewal of our minds, we are to get about the business of that which is utterly ordinary. Quiet, peaceful living in the work and quiet, peaceful living in the family life. God calls the exiled church to peace. But then he also calls us to prayer. And here the focus is outward, isn't it? Outward prayer. In verse 7 he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. I noticed that Jeff uh, sent out an email letting you know that this would be the passage I'd be preaching this afternoon. And I noticed that he said that this is a maybe lesser known passage with a very well-known verse, and I assume that the verse that he was referring to is probably this verse, because I think this is the hot one that's being used in the church today. Specifically, I've noticed that a lot of, especially new churches that are starting up are using this verse as kind of a, a theme verse, if you will. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. In its welfare you will find your welfare. Thank you may have noticed that some churches are actually adopting adopting the slogan, uh, a church in the city for the city. In the city for the city. And I believe there's there's some merit to that. I, I will tell you that I am one of those people who finds this verse to be an enormous personal challenge um, as an application in my own life. Do, there are sometimes you read the, the word of God and you you wish you were God and you wish you could change a word, right? One of those words for me is welfare. Do I really have to seek the welfare of the city? Especially in today's world, 
where welfare suggests what? Public assistance programs. Does that mean that I'm called to support all of those? What responsibility do I have to seek the welfare, support the welfare of those who are poor, who are unemployed, who are uninsured? How about public education? Is not public education in part, not fully, but in part, a welfare program of sorts that is intended to leave no child behind, right? Am I called to champion a personal investment in that kind of public welfare? I don't mean to bite off more than I can chew this morning, this afternoon. It's not a cop-out to say I think that these questions call for a great deal of wisdom. Because there is a sense in which we're called to seek the welfare of the city. It means what it says. Even if that city is Babylon. And by the way, our culture is tame in comparison to the culture, the barbaric, pagan, cruel practices of Babylon. And again, it's very important that we look into our own hearts and know our, ourselves. I am probably, personally, more indifferent to my city's welfare than God is. We have that slogan in our city, I love L.A. God loves L.A. more than I do. I'm more like Jonah than I care to admit. I'd rather see Nineveh destroyed. But God reminds me, He cares about those who are ignorant who are perishing apart from him and yet I think we do have to be careful when we say that we are a church for the city that needs qualification it does notice for instance that God doesn't call them to seek the welfare of Babylon in just an unqualified fashion as if they were seeking the welfare of Babylon so that it could thrive as Babylon no, instead he says, in its welfare, what? You will find your welfare. I think we're to seek the welfare of the city as, as we would seek our own welfare. Seek to improve it as we would improve the church. See, there's a constant call to the church throughout every age to first of all come out from her. You know who the her is. Come out from Babylon what the Lord says in Revelation and be separate we aren't for instance called to intermarry with the world we aren't called to identify our children as the world's children nor are we even to call the children of unbelievers our kids I think that we overuse that word community so much this is where we commune this is where we truly commune and I don't particularly think that we're called to be a church in the city for the city if what we mean by that is that we're here to build the city that man is building. There are two cities. There's the city of man and the city of God. We're not building the city of man. We're building the city of God whose architect and builder is God. Again, I think being for the city can be a very good thing if what we mean by that is that we understand that we are not of the world, but instead we are sent into the world with a message, right? A message that Jesus is Savior, a message that Jesus is Lord and that He is reconciling all people to Himself. But we're to be a church for Christ and call the world to Christ. 
We're not called to participate in building Babylon any more than we were called to participate in building Babel. But we should seek its welfare. Because in it, we will find our welfare. Again, the message is clear. You're exiles. This is my current plan for you. Seek its welfare. In it, you will find your welfare. I guess what I'm getting at is this, and again, I may have convoluted the simplicity of the point that I set out to make, but we are called, first of all, to peaceful living, then we are also called to prayerful living. We are to pray for the city. Is there any better way that we can seek the welfare of the city than to pray for it? And that is a really good start if we're not seeking its welfare in other ways. You know, even if we end up disagreeing about the levels of involvement or investment in so-called welfare of our city, we must agree that we're all called to pray for it. We're called to seek its welfare through prayer. Again, Paul urges us in the New Testament to offer up supplications, prayers, intercessions, He even says thanksgivings, thanksgivings for kings and all who are in high positions. And Paul was talking about people like Nero, Titus, who overran Jerusalem. You know, I imagine every once in a while we're comfortable with, you know, offering up kind of one of those popcorn prayers for all our leaders and our president. That's good. I don't mean to mock that, but do we really pray for them? Heartfelt supplications, intercessions for them. And if someone comes to power with whom we who we consider truly the opposition, will we humble ourselves enough to pray for that person? God tells his people that he wants them to pursue peaceful activities, that he wants them to pray during their exile. And then finally, God calls us to live in the hope of a promise. And namely, that promise is that he will specifically visit his people. In verse 10, God says he's going to visit his people after 70 years. Now, those who have studied uh, this have often had uh, a real challenge in reconciling this apparent specific prophecy with that time frame of 70 years. In some ways, it's very difficult because it's hard to say exactly when the exile began it really kind of did take place in stages, which is evident, I think, in the beginning of this passage. There are some who are left back in Jerusalem, among them Jeremiah the prophet, while other exiles are already in Babylon. It's also really difficult to to say for certain when the exile ended. Was it with the decree of Cyrus or the beginning of a rebuilding project in Jerusalem, the arrival of Ezra, etc.? There are ways to make the numbers work. However, I think that the number 70 here is used to convey the idea of completion, of the times having reached their fulfillment, of perfection in God's sovereign plan. Numbers, you know, hold more of a significance in Judaism than they do for us. For instance, the number 7 signifies perfection, completion. The number 10 does as well. And so when you multiply those two together, 7 and 10, you get something that's uber-fulfilling, uber-complete, 70. See, my point is that I think that God is saying something more than just, here's the exact date when you're returning. Yes, it's true that the, one of the exiles, Daniel, 
He was given the ability to perceive when the exile would end by reading this passage. But Jeremiah is full of these fuller eschatological promises. And I believe this is one of them. Again, I don't mean to obscure the fact that this promise wasn't temporarily fulfilled when Israel was allowed to go back to its land. But I think it's ultimately fulfilled. It's ultimately fulfilled when Jesus comes back for his church. And when he brings our home to us. We're waiting for the promised land to come to us. God promised to visit his people. You think of how distinct that is as, as one of the tenets of our faith, right? How, what a beautiful truth that is that we hold on to. We do call one another in the church throughout the ages. God calls the church to return to him, right? But he also promises to come to us, to visit us. Of course, he has visited us. He tabernacled with us. He came to us in the person of his son. But Jesus then also promised the church that he would visit us again, that he was going away, that he was going to prepare a place for us, and that he would come again. In the meantime, he hasn't left us as orphans. But he's told us that on that day, he will gather us from the nations. All the places where we have been scattered as sojourners, as exiles. Remember, Peter addressed his letter to exiles of the dispersion that were scattered all over the world. And the book of Revelation gives us this picture. And it's following the fall of Babylon, by the way. Gives us this picture. The holy city, Jerusalem, descends from heaven with this declaration. Now the dwelling of God is with man. God will come to us. It's a promise we're to hold on to. When 70 years are complete, God's going to gather us from the places where we've been sent into exile. He's going to visit us. He's going to come. And when He comes, He will be with us forever. God with us. Forever. See, that's the great hope of the church. Emmanuel. It's the great hope for Christians living in exile. As I uh, begin to wrap up, I want to um, offer just a few words of, I know I've been giving application, but very specific application, maybe even homework, you might say. If there's one more word I wanted to offer. I didn't really incorporate into this message. I think it's really important. So much as Christians living in exile we, as I've done in this message even, tend to look at the world, right? Say, why are we living in exile? But who should we be looking at first? We should be looking at ourselves, right? God sent his people into exile, not just to punish them, although it was punishment for their unfaithfulness, as you're probably seeing through reading the book of Hosea but also that they would repent. Second, I recognize that identifying ourselves as exiles in our own land isn't something that we're just going to readily accept. Right? People don't want to accept that. I don't want to accept that. The truth is that even though I firmly believe that we should be seeing ourselves as exiles, we do live in this land of tremendous 
opportunity, of freedom, of liberty, where there are still vestiges of Christian faith being expressed. And we don't need to champion that being that going away, that disappearing altogether. I think that we can call the culture back to its Christian roots. I think we should be. I think that we should be politically active. I think that one of the things that Christians definitely ought to be doing is expressing the truth. We need Christians, especially in journalism. But I also think that we have to accept this designation of exile. Not just because it's in Jeremiah, but because it's in First Peter. Because it's in Revelation. Because it's in Hebrews. That's hard. But I think it will inform our activity for the future. And third, when we've accepted that understanding, I think that we need to be equipped. We need to constantly equip ourselves to be people of peace who pursue prayer. And hold on to a promise. And I know of no better example than Daniel. And here's really where, if you will, the homework comes into play. I want to encourage you to read and study the book of Daniel. Daniel was a man of, of course, uh, just because he was peaceful and prayerful, he was meek in that regard, did not, make, did not change him from being a man of conviction and courage. Remember, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He also knew how to peacefully and persuasively engage his rulers to give him concessions so that he wouldn't have to defile himself. He was a man who served the king. In doing so, in serving the king, he sought the welfare of those people, the welfare of Babylon, right? He kept them from starving. And of course, he was a man of incredible prayer. He did, of course, pray to go back home. We can pray that our home would come to us. But he also, I'm, I'm, I'm certain of it, he must have prayed for Babylon. He interceded for them as well. Even when Babylon threatened him, threatened to destroy him. He lived in exile, but he always lived in the hope that God would revisit his people, even though he died without seeing it. Along with Daniel, read the more didactic instruction of first peter peter consistently urges christians to be quiet peaceful peter people who are prepared to suffer as christians through the time of their exile it's god's plan for us and finally let me just offer this the cry the cry and the prayer of the church should be maranatha right maranatha come lord jesus that's how we should Respond, and I, I want. That's why I chose the um, hymn of response that I did for today. It's worship. O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's of course such a um, traditional hymn of Advent. But Jesus, I think, invites us to sing it to Him as a prayer, as well, which makes it fitting for any season. Think of what you're about to sing. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That's you. Who, long, who mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. It's a hymn of mourning, you might say, while you're in Babylon, but it's also a hymn of rejoicing, right? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Now, rather than close us with a prayer, I want us to stand, and I want us to sing this as a prayer. O come, 
O come, Emmanuel. Would you stand and let's sing this together. And if Debbie, if you would, we could uh, sing all the verses except verse 2. That's all right.